you will turn with me tonight once again to the Acts of the Apostles and this evening to the 27th and the 28th chapters. We have been following Paul for several chapters now as he has stood before this dignitary and that defending himself against false accusations and also taking opportunity to proclaim the gospel in those settings to some of these powers that be along the way. But he's not made much headway with the more local authorities, and so he has appealed his case all the way up to the emperor in Rome, to Caesar himself. And after some deliberation, the governor Festus has determined to send him to Caesar. And that's where we're going to pick up the train of events tonight as we open here to Acts 27 and 28. Paul is about to set sail now in the custody of the empire for the great capital city of Rome to stand trial before Caesar's judgment seat. And you'll notice, incidentally, that Paul does not go alone. Two of his missionary companions are apparently allowed to travel with him. We'll see one of them, Aristarchus, in verse 2. And we will also find that Luke, our narrator, joins him as well. Now, these final chapters don't mention Luke by name, but you will notice that the narrative in chapter 27 is written in the first person. Luke does not simply say that he, Paul, would sail, but that it was decided, verse 1, that we would sail for Italy. So Paul and Aristarchus and Luke are shipping off to Rome together to await Paul's trial before the emperor and what a journey is in store for them. And I want us to read it about it now, beginning here in chapter 27, verse 1, and continuing all the way down through chapter 28, verse 15. It's a lengthy passage, I know, but hopefully the wind and the waves that will blow against us will keep us alert as we follow through. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 27, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in an Adramidian ship which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Sinidus, Since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, and with difficulty, sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. 
But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island but when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little further on, farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. 
And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. When they had been brought safely through, Then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus, we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Father, now we pray um, that tonight, in these few minutes together, that you would guide us as surely to the purposes that you have for us this evening as you guided Paul and Luke, and Aristarchus, and all these others so long ago. Guide us. Speak to us, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. It seems to me that I've divided several of these sermons from the book of Acts into three portions, and that shoe seems to fit again tonight. So I just want to highlight three things for you in this seafaring adventure in which the great apostle finds himself. Three things. The first is simply that I want you to notice the calm of God's preacher. Upon first glance, this 
passage doesn't seem to be about calm. It seems to be about storm. But if you look at it carefully, you'll notice that in the midst of the storm, there is calm in God's preacher. Did you notice that in this long and winding journey to Rome? Paul has reasons not to be calm, of course. He's awaiting trial before the most powerful man in the world. He's incarcerated, although given great freedoms, as we read, but still he's in custody of the state, and he's still awaiting trial, the outcome of which he does not know. And not only does Paul have legal issues, but then he and and his companions find themselves in the midst of this terrifying storm at sea. And then when they have finally made it to safety in chapter 28, Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake, one which the natives of the island let us in on the fact that it must have been a deadly snake. So you just put yourself in any one of those positions tonight and think about how unsettled you might feel about to stand trial before the highest court in the land. How calm would you be? Stuck out on a ship in the midst of a deadly storm. How calm would you be knowing that deadly poison has entered into your bloodstream? How calm would you be? How calm would I be? I confess that I can't sometimes even make it through a traffic snarl without getting all nervous and worked up. And yet here is Paul in all of these difficulties facing the possibility of potential death in them all, and he shows himself the consummate man of faith and of composure. He seems, as they sometimes say, In the sports world, he seems to have ice water in his veins. He appears all throughout this dangerous voyage to be unflappable. Did you notice that as we read along? We see it especially in the two speeches that Paul gave to his shipmates there in chapter 27. You remember that amidst the storm, the crew had taken great measures to try and save the ship. They ran cables, verse 17, underneath the ship's hull to try and hold things together. Verse 18, they began throwing the cargo overboard and eventually the tackle as well in verse 19. But the storm raged on, and in verse 20, hope began to be abandoned. Surely many of the ship's occupants must have been near despair, and some of them perhaps may have even been hysterical with fear about what they were facing. But look at Paul in verses 21 through 26, speaking courage to these men, urging them that all will be well with them and that they are in God's hands. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet, now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you. You all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. It's quite a speech, isn't it? Paul is calm. Paul is even confident when everyone else is abandoning hope. And then we see the same thing a few days later in verses 33 through 36. The men of the ship are still in great danger. 
Many of them are apparently still in great despondency as well. They haven't eaten for days because of it. But in verses 33 through 36, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. Again, Paul is calm and collected when everyone else is too nervous even to eat. He's able to encourage these men. He's able to serve bread to them. He's able to lead in saying grace before the meal. And then just to sit down and eat himself. And we see the same cool from the apostle once the ship finally lands in Malta as well. His difficulty is not over. Now he's bitten by this deadly snake and he simply shakes it off in chapter 28 verse 5. And apparently continues to go about his business. And not only that, but remember that he's still in the custody of Rome. He's still awaiting his court date with the emperor. But Paul is not hiding away in his quarters on the island of Malta, brooding over what might happen to him, worrying about what his fate will be. He's actually out and about among the islanders, isn't he? Praying for them and healing them of their diseases. So he's still living still serving and ministering to others in spite of his own difficulties. And I say in all of this, just observe the calm, the composure of God's preacher. Observe how Paul is not worried and bothered like other men so often are, perhaps like some of us often are. Paul is peaceful and confident even amidst swirling difficulties and the reason for that as i hinted a few minutes ago is because he was a man of faith and this is where the rubber meets the road this is the application it wasn't just that paul was one of those fortunate people whose natural disposition was laid back and relaxed don't those people sometimes irk you when you're all stirred up about something and they just seem not to have a care in the world well paul Paul may have had that gift of common grace. He may have been a naturally calm person, but his calm in Acts 27 and 28 is more than that. It's more than just a personality trait. Paul's calm was rooted in Paul's faith, and Paul's faith was rooted in the promises of Paul's God. God had given Paul a promise, hadn't he? Verses 23 and 24, this very night... An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. That's a promise. Now that promise itself obviously went a long way towards keeping Paul calm. But Paul wasn't calm in the midst of these great trials merely because he had received a promise. Paul was calm in the midst of these trials because he also believed the promise that he'd been given. 
Listen to Paul's faith in verse 25. Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. It wasn't that he had been told only, but that he believed what he'd been told. And that, I think, is the key to Paul's claim in this passage, or Paul's calm in this passage. He believes God. He believes the promise that has been made to him, and he believes the character of the one who has made it. I believe God. And because he does, Paul himself is able to keep up his courage and he is able to help those around him to do the same because the promise concerns their livelihood as well. Keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. That's what keeps a man or woman calm in the face of life's storms. Faith in the God whom we serve, that he will do exactly what he has said he will do. I wonder if you have that kind of faith. Well, someone says, maybe if we had an angelic visitor like Paul did, maybe if God made his plans for us as clear as he did for Paul, then it would be easier to have such faith. Perhaps. But it seems to me that the word of God is the word of God, whether we hear it from an angel's lips or whether we read it on the pages of a passage like Romans chapter 8. Both are God's word, right? One type of communication is no more or no less sure than the other. So why don't we always believe the Bible with the confidence with which Paul believed this message from the angel? Not because of the medium of the message, but because of the littleness of our faith, right? God doesn't always tell us, of course, as he did for the apostle, exactly how a given trial is going to turn out. But he does promise things to us, does he not? And those promises are just as sure as the one Paul received from the angel's mouth. God does say to us things like, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He does promise us that He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. He does promise us that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And we could go on like this, could we not? Remembering, reciting the promises of God. But the question is not really whether we remember the promises, or even whether we can recite the promises, but whether we can say with Paul, I believe God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. And the best test of whether we believe God is often the exam that comes upon us by means of suffering and uncertainty. Will we be calm then? 
Not stoic, mind you, not unemotional, not oblivious to pain and sorrow. That's not what Paul was. But he was collected. He was able to carry on, trusting God, and even able to minister to and encourage others, both at sea and at Malta. Will we be like that? Will we be able to say with Paul in the day of suffering, in the day of uncertainty, in the face of death even, I believe God? That's the first thing tonight, the calm of God's preacher. But then we need to notice, secondly, the care of God's providence. The care of God's providence. Not only did Paul believe God's promise to guide him and his shipmates safely through, but God, for his part, was faithful to that promise. Not only to keep Paul and his fellow passengers safe, but also, verse 24, to get him all the way to Rome. In all the ups and downs of his voyage, here in these chapters, I hope you can see that the hand of providence is clearly at work to care for Paul and indeed for all who are aboard this ship. God is the one who got them safely through. Now I realize that one could read an account of a, of a great storm at sea like this one, let's say in a news magazine, and miss entirely the hand of providence that was behind it. In other words, one could read about all these near misses and the eventual safe issue of the journey and attribute it, for instance, to the wisdom of these sailors who dropped anchor at key moments and threw things overboard at the right times and reinforced the ship and took careful soundings and so on. The sailors were the reason why they got through safely. One could also give the credit to Julius, the Roman centurion assigned to Paul, who not only showed the apostle several considerations along the way, but who also, when the ship was finally wrecked in verses 42 and 43, kept the other soldiers from killing all the prisoners on board, including Paul. Julius was the reason why Paul got through safely. And one could also cite Publius and the natives of Malta as well for their hospitality when these bedraggled and hungry sailors and inmates and soldiers washed up on their shores, and also for the way in which they sent them on their way in chapter 28, verse 10, well supplied. It was the Maltese who got them to Rome safely, and all these people do deserve credit, right? And praise. Luke mentions them for a reason. Their bravery, their courtesy, their wisdom, their hospitality at all these various points truly were the reasons, humanly speaking, why Paul and these others made it to Rome in one piece. But as with everything in this world, there are reasons behind the reasons, right? And that is a layer of the story that sometimes the news magazines don't peel down to. But Luke does peel down to it. The question in this chapter is not whether Publius and his subjects and the sailors and Julius. The question I say is not whether these people saved Paul's life, but how and why. How did Paul end up with such a friendly centurion as his guard all the way to Rome? And why was Julius such an apparently gracious man to begin with? Well, maybe he was under strict orders to be so with this particular 
very valuable prisoner. But if that was the case, why was that the case? Why does Paul have such good protection here? And why were these Maltese so kind to the shipwrecked men? Perhaps, as in many cultures today, it was simply ingrained in their customs by common grace to be that way. But how did it come to be that way? How did that come to be their custom? And why did this ship wash up on their shores and not on some others? And why were the sailors aboard ship so desperate to keep this ship afloat and successful at doing it long enough to survive? Well, self-preservation certainly played a large part. But why were they successful for so many long days and nights? The answer to all of these things is, of course, God. Right? God. He had more of an interest in this ship than either Julius or the sailors or the people of Malta could ever have dreamed of having because he had made promises. Back in chapter 23, he made a promise that Paul would get to Rome, that Paul would witness there. And he had reiterated that promise here in the midst of this storm in chapter 27, verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. You must stand before Caesar. And therefore, it wasn't happenstance that this preacher, for whom God had a plan and to whom God had made a promise, it wasn't happenstance that this preacher found himself attached to this conscientious and even generous centurion who saved his life. God did that. God put Paul with Julius. And indeed, God is the one who made this man conscientious and generous to begin with. And the same could be said about the landing on Malta. Paul and his shipmates might have been blown onto any number of shores. They might have washed in where there was no human settlement at all. No food, no help, no kindness, no shelter. But instead, because God had made a promise of safekeeping, the wind blew them precisely to these friendly shores and to these friendly people whom the Lord had prepared for hospitality. And then this is also why the sailors were able to struggle on so valiantly and to keep the ship afloat so long. God had made them able. God had caused their plans to work out in the end. That's what verse 24 teaches us, isn't it? God has granted you all those. God has done it. Yes, using the skill and wisdom and kindness of many a human instrument, but ultimately God is the one who kept this ship afloat and its passengers alive. In ways that we're not told directly, he was behind the scenes back at Caesarea, guiding the decisions of the powers that be so that Paul would be entrusted to a man like Julius. And in ways that Luke doesn't record, God had been working in the hearts of Julius and Publius and the Maltese to prepare them for such a time as this. And in a manner that could never have been read in the chaos that this giant storm appeared on the surface to be, God was even guiding the wind and the waves to get Paul and the others to just the right shoreline at just the right time. And though Luke doesn't say this specifically either, surely we understand that it was God who protected Paul from the viper's venom as well. Now, how do I know that all these things are orchestrated by God? 
Well, not only because the rest of the Bible makes it plain that all such things are under his sovereign control, but also because in this very chapter, he's the one who promises to keep Paul safe. Not anyone else. The others had their part to play, but they didn't make the promises, did they? Try as they might to save this ship and its passengers, neither Julius nor the ship's crew would ever have made a promise like the one that's made to Paul in verse 24, that everyone will come out of this storm alive. They knew that they were not ultimately in control of such things. But God can make a promise like that, can he? Because he is in control of every seeming contingency, of every wave, every sail, every sailor, every centurion. And he wields them all skillfully to keep his servant alive and to keep his own promise. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. And so I say to you tonight, we not only have God's precious and magnificent promises upon which we must believe, but also, and even better, we have the stalwart, unflinching, wise, strong, good, sovereign character of the one who makes the promises. He always does what he says he will do, even if he must move winds and waves and soldiers and kings in order to do it. And if we belong to this God, through faith in his Son, we will always be, just like Paul in this passage, in the care of his providence. God really does cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. Do you believe that? Do you trust God's hand in guiding all the wind and the waves that come into your life? even when they're tossing you about something fierce, do you still believe that you will come to God's desired haven at the end of it all? Can you see God's providence in the people whom he has placed in the ship with you? Your co-workers, your fellow church members, the members of your family, they weren't all thrown in together at random. Somehow, like Julius and Publius and these others, God has put all of your acquaintances together too to achieve his purpose. So learn to see God's hand in these things. Learn from this story that God knows what he's doing, even when many, many signs seem to point to nothing but chaos on the surface of the waters. If you belong to Christ, you are, just like Paul, in the care of God's providence. So we've seen the calm of God's preacher, and that calm is rooted in the care of God's providence in which he believes. Paul knew that his sovereign God would keep his promises and keep him safe. Now, finally, I want you to see that the care of God's providence in Acts 27 and 28 was rooted not only in his general promises to care for his people and cause all things to work together for their good, but that the care of God's providence here in these chapters was specifically rooted in a particular purpose that God had for the Apostle Paul. The care of God's providence is rooted in Acts 27 and 28 in the certainty of God's purpose. That's the third and final 
item, the certainty of God's purpose. God had a particular purpose for this trip to Rome and for the apostle who was making it. And we see it once again in verse 24, which you may be realizing by now is, I believe, the key text in this entire passage. What is God's purpose for the apostle and for his own glory in this journey, in this chapter? You must stand before Caesar. You must stand before Caesar. That's why God has Paul on this journey to begin with. That's why the local judiciary system in Palestine didn't ever come to any decision about the apostle. And that's why God will not let Paul sink with this ill-fated ship or die on the fangs of the viper. Because Paul must stand before Caesar. And why must Paul stand before Caesar? Well, it seems to me that God's ultimate purpose in bringing his great preacher to Rome probably had very little to do with getting Paul the fairest trial possible. Rather, I think God purposed to bring Paul before Caesar, not for the sake of jurisprudence, but for the sake of evangelism. It seems to me, in other words, that God brought his preacher to Rome in order to preach. That God wanted Paul to speak before the emperor the same way that we heard him speak last week before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus. The same way he had spoken also before the governor Felix in chapter 24. The same way, perhaps, as he had done at the Areopagus in Athens earlier on. You must stand before Caesar, I believe, in order to speak of Christ to him. Indeed, that was the thrust of the Lord's earlier promise to Paul in chapter 23, verse 11. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness also at Rome. Did you hear it? You must witness at Rome, chapter 23. And now you must stand before Caesar, who lives at Rome. And I conclude that the purpose is surely one and the same. That at least one of the people before whom Paul was to witness at Rome was the emperor himself. Now mark all of this well. God's great purpose installing out Paul's trials at Jerusalem and at Caesarea, God's great purpose in letting Paul on board this ship bound for Rome, God's great purpose in bringing Paul through the storm that they encountered and to safety, God's great purpose in all these things was evangelism. God was moving the pieces all around the chessboard and bouncing Paul all over the place, indeed causing him to pass literally through the waters, all so that Paul might speak of Christ to someone who needed to hear. Not only to Caesar, in fact, but as we'll see later on in chapter 28, to many others who lived at Rome as well. You must witness at Rome. You must stand before Caesar. That is what God is doing with all Paul's trials and travels. And I want you to think of this, Christian, as a paradigm for your own life. I want you to realize that God is orchestrating your life and mine not to make things as easy as possible, 
but that, among other Romans 8.28 kinds of purposes, God is moving the pieces of, the, of your life around the board, sometimes even in ways that are difficult for you to understand because you too must stand before certain people and speak of Jesus to them. That's why you're in the boat or on the airplane or in the same office with Julius or Publius or whomever it may be. That's why God has dropped you out on Malta or in whatever neighborhood he's put you. That's why you must sometimes pass through the waters, end up in hospitals or unemployment lines or even funeral homes to speak for Jesus there. Now, you and I are not apostles like Paul, and we may never get the chance to stand, for instance, in the Oval Office and speak for Jesus, but we will stand somewhere. And one of the reasons we will stand in the various places God puts us, one of the reasons we must stand before certain people is to witness to Christ's cause before them. That is the certainty of God's purpose, that his people will be put in position to share Christ with those who need to hear. And if God said to Paul, you must stand before Caesar, then though Luke does not record it for us, it must have actually happened. And in this connection, I need to retract and correct something that I've said two or three times in recent sermons from Acts. Even last week, I said we do not know if Paul ever actually got to speak before Caesar. But I shouldn't have said that. I should have read a little further into the book of Acts because though Luke doesn't record the meeting between Paul and Caesar, God guarantees it here in chapter 27, doesn't he? There will be such a meeting. You must stand before Caesar, God says. That is the Lord's certain purpose for this whole journey. And he keeps Paul safe amidst all the perils and mobs at Jerusalem, amidst all the perils at sea, even from the viper's venom, he keeps Paul safe to ensure that Paul will stand before Caesar. So surely we can conclude that having purposed such a meeting and having moved mightily to get Paul safely to the city in which it was to take place, surely we must conclude that God did actually bring about such a meeting. And wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall in that room? Wouldn't you love to know how Paul went about trying to explain Jesus to the most powerful man in the world? Wouldn't you love to know what Caesar thought of this man and of his message about the one true creator God and of how this God became incarnate in Bethlehem and of his sinless humanity, and of his death on our behalf, absorbing his own just wrath against our sin. So unlike any other God that we can conceive, wouldn't it have been interesting to see what Caesar thought of all this? And to see if he sneered like others did when Paul got to the part about the resurrection. But alas, in God's wisdom, he did not ordain that Luke record these things. The book of Acts is going to end in a few more verses with Paul testifying to many other people at Rome, but Luke does not tell us what happened when Paul finally got his audience with the emperor. But no matter, because what's really important tonight is not how Caesar responded to the gospel, not how Caesar responded to Christ, but how you will, right? 
What will you do with Paul's Jesus? What will you do with the crucified and risen one whose very name means Savior? Is he your Savior? Is he your king? Do you belong to him? Do you trust him? Do you long to serve him the way Paul did? Is your faith and your love for him what it should be, Christian? Or for some of you, I should ask, are you a Christian? You could be tonight if you would simply finally entrust yourself to this Jesus whom Paul trusted so completely. Indeed, perhaps that is the reason why God brought us all here safely this evening. You didn't pass through the trials that Paul passed through to get here, but God did keep you safe to get here, didn't he? Why? Because I must stand before you, and you must sit in these pews before me, so that I may tell you of Jesus once again and urge you to believe. Is it possible that this is the same sort of meeting that God was organizing between Paul and Caesar? Is it possible that we must be in this room together this evening so that someone who needs to be saved will hear the gospel? Well, that's not merely possible. That is God's certain purpose, isn't it? That among all the other things that he's doing in this place, through this passage this evening, one of them is that someone will be reminded of Jesus again and brought another step closer to his kingdom. Perhaps that someone will finally cross the threshold and come inside. Christ died for our sins. While we were yet sinners, he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf and to die the death that we deserve so that we might not have to die it ourselves, so that we would be friends of God, so that we might be declared right in his sight. Paul must stand before Caesar and say such things, and I must stand before you tonight with the apostle and simply plead with you once more again to believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved.